If you will take your Bibles and turn one, once again to the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 3. If you're new to us, we've been working through the book of Colossians for a number of weeks now, and we will be doing so through the end of June. Um, and so we're right pretty much in the middle, getting ready to get on the latter half of the book. Uh, find ourselves today in verses 12 through 14. So we're really kind of doing a three-part series here in the midst of chapter 3, which calls us to put off earthly, uh, earthly passions and to put on the very things that please the Lord and that God calls us to live in. Last week we looked at verses 5 through 11 as we considered putting to death what is earthly in us, and now this day, this morning, we're going to be looking at the things that God calls us to put on. I'm going to begin reading in chapter 3 at verse 12. This is the word of the Lord. Paul writes, inspired by the Spirit, Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these... Put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you give it to us for our good. We thank you that by it and by your indwelling spirit, you make us more and more like Jesus. So, Lord, would you use that now, use your word now to that end. Draw us closer to you and make us more like Christ, we pray in his name. Amen. How often do you have to think about the types of clothes you're going to wear? Maybe you're in a situation where you don't have to think about it too much, but for many it requires an intentional choice every day. As we get older, especially as we enter the workforce or some other situation we find ourselves in, we know that in many cases there is some expectation of dress. If you're a business professional or a teacher or you work in the medical field or even a construction worker, I mean, the, you just go across the, the spectrum of, uh, of jobs, of, an, of employment, and we have a variety of different expectations of how you're going to dress in a particular profession. It would be odd for an electrician to wear a suit and tie to work, just as it would be odd for you engineer types to wear a police uniform to your job tomorrow. We dress in a way that is appropriate to what we do. I think that's exactly what Paul is getting at here in this passage as he's calling us to put away, to take off old clothing and to put on new clothing. He's calling us to dress in a way that matches who we are. In essence, he's saying if you're going to follow Christ, you need to dress the part, not in a fake way, but in a way that Christ calls us to. 
Again, just last week we considered in verses 5 through 11 the things he highlights that we're to put to death, that we're to put away, that we're to take off. And now in verses 12 through 17, he highlights the type of things, the kinds of things that we're to put on, things we're called to pursue, things that we're called to grow in, that should characterize our lives as Christians. You notice when we look at verses 12 through 14, that the list that Paul gives us, I want you to notice the context or the environment in which these things are lived out. Paul's list, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, forgiving, with, forgiving each other, these, these virtues we could call them, that we're called to put on, that should mark our lives, that should be the clothes in which we wear, are all expressed in relationship and in proximity to one another. It would be difficult to be patient or to be meek or humble with yourself. It presumes community. So it's interesting to me that when we think about the life that God has called us to live in Christ, much of what he calls us to do and much of what he calls us to be assumes other people in our lives. We we sometimes talk about personal holiness, personal faith, personal this, personal that, and I think sometimes when we use that word personal, we use it too much. And it almost isolates us away from the community from which God has called us to live and to express the characteristics that he's called us to put on. These virtues that we're called to and that we're going to look at today all presuppose community. These new practices, these new clothes that we're called to put on reflect the reality of the new humanity and the new community that we've been called to live in. And these are particularly visible in the calling that we have to put on love. You notice in this text, he calls us to put on these things, to put on compassion, kindness, humility, and patience, bearing with one another, forgiving each other. And then in verse 14, notice what he says, and above all these, put on love. One way we could say that is verse 14 really is the umbrella by which all of these things present themselves. So as a chief fruit of living the resurrected life that we're called to live, the the newness of life that we're called to walk in, the the chief fruit among all other fruit is demonstrated in how we live with love and unity with other Christians. That's what this text is calling us to, to put on these things, but above all, put on love. So this morning we're to consider several aspects of the kind of love we're called to pursue and how we pursue it. What does this look like? We're going to consider several things this morning, and as we walk through these things, I pray and hope that we will find it clarifying, and not just informative, but even transformative in our hearts, that God would make us more loving toward each other. 
towards others outside of our own fellowship. That as a result of hearing God's word this morning, that the Holy Spirit would take this word and root it deep within us and make us a people that look like this. That there would be no question among the people of God at Redeeming Grace Baptist Church that these people follow Jesus because of the kinds of clothes we wear. And I'm not talking about cotton. I'm talking about these virtues, the way that we care, the way that we relate to each other, that that would be evidence, that there would be no question who we are. So let's look at these aspects of the love that God calls us to live in, the things that we're called to put on. First thing that we need to see is the foundation of biblical love. If we're going to be a loving people, we need to understand the basis by which we can be a loving people. Notice, Paul says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. You can say beloved or beloved. It all works in English, all right? Notice before we want to run to compassion and kindness and meekness and patience and humility, he says something about who we are. He says we're chosen, we're holy, we're beloved. We know in verses 1 through 4 already, Paul has talked about how we've died and we've been raised with Christ. And because of this new union we have with Jesus, a new life has been given so that we're to put away earthly passions and put on the new self. But again, before we go too far with what we're to put on, again, Paul provides a reminder. It's, it's interesting, isn't it? He just doesn't say it once. He says it many, many times in different ways, reminding us of the basis, the foundation from which we're to live our lives. It's as if we can, he's, he's, in, he's implanting in our minds by the Holy Spirit that do not forget who you are. If you're called to live in a certain way, you must not forget what that is attached to. Don't lose sight of who you are and get all caught up within the what you're called to be and do beforehand. He says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. He could have just said, Put on then compassion, kindness. He could have said that. Wouldn't have been wrong. It would have been perfectly clear. He could have just said, put on then compassion. But no, he doesn't. He says, put on then as God's chosen, holy and beloved. He uses these terms. These words were used of Israel in the Old Testament, signifying them as God's special treasured possession. Israel was God's elect people, his chosen people. Israel was God's holy and beloved people. And so it is significant here that he uses these same three terms to refer largely to, to, to a, a congregation largely made up of Gentiles. That, that's a big deal. The same terms he's using for his Old covenant people is the, are the same terms he's now using for a largely Gentile church in Colossae. You too are chosen. You too are holy and beloved. Terms formerly reserved for Israel now applied to Christians. A new Israel. These are terms that we know that are also refer, used to refer to Christ. He is the chosen one. He is the holy one, and he is the one beloved by the Father. And it's in him that believers find their identity. The fact that we are chosen or elect, Peter calls us elect exiles. 
highlights God's sovereign act of coming after us and making us his own. It's a sovereign work of God's grace where he pursues the rebel and he brings him into the family by adoption. Not because of any merit of our own, but because of the love with which he had for us even before the foundation of the world. That we're holy and beloved, we're set apart as God's people, objects of his covenant love. That's who you are. You've been marked out before eternity. God set his affection upon you before eternity, knowing full well what you're going to be like. He calls you to himself. Friends, God's love for his people is not contingent upon human response, but is a prior commitment he has toward us, which then serves as the basis of our love for others. You know, stuff like the doctrine of election is an important foundation because without it, none of us would be a Christian. And it serves a devastating blow to human pride. You can't march in here on a particular Sunday and just say, I'm the best thing that's ever happened to God. Brothers and sisters, we were all by nature children of wrath. And had God condemned us for eternity, he would have been just to do so. And yet, he plucked us out. He called us to himself. He gave us an adopt- He gave us a status as adopted children of God. We are now co-heirs with Christ. Was that because you had it all together? Was that because you had it all, that you somehow deserve that? Not at all. It was despite that. And friend, when we get our minds around the reality that God chose us and that, that, that we are His holy, His people set apart, that we are loved by Him, then that, that serves a devastating blow to pride and it brings us, it, it establishes in us this, this reality of humility. It humbles us and it makes us grateful that we have what we have, not because it's our own doing, but because it is a, is a testimony to the amazing grace and gift of God. And when you realize that you were dead in your sins and that God in his mercy marked you out to be his own, even before the foundation of the world, and he worked to call you to himself, it will leave you absolutely humbled and amazed of why in the world did he do that for me? You will not be compassionate, patient, meek, humble, kind, until you understand the radical grace of God in coming after you. That's why he says that. Don't forget who you are. You need to understand the foundation of biblical love. It begins with the, found, with, the, the, with the reality of God's covenant love that he lavishes upon you in making you his own. But what about the character of this love? Let's look number two at the character of biblical love. Now we can get to Paul's list. Kind of set the stage as to who we are and be reminded of that. Back in verses 5 through 11, he gives two lists of five things each that we should put off. And now we see a new list that we're to put on. Compassion, kindness, or compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Five, five more things. And these are not necessarily exact opposites of the things that we're to put off. They certainly are related. But these are just five new virtues that we're called to pursue that should characterize 
And what we find in this list are virtues that are singularly focused on building and maintaining a community that is characterized by love, by care for each other. Jesus said, this world is going to know that you're my disciples. How are they going to know? Because of your church sign? Because of where you meet? No, because of the love that you have for each other. This is a testimony to the world, how we relate. This is why it's so important that we get this. Let's look at these real quick. We could do a sermon each on them, but we're just going to kind of do a, an airplane overview. First thing that he calls us to as far as virtues to put on is compassion or compassionate hearts. This word is sometimes used with the term mercy. In the old language, it's literally compassionate bowels. That'll encourage you. Seat of who you are, the, the compassion. Seat of mercy. It's a term that calls the believer to have mercy or compassion or pity on others. Friends, it's not enough simply to get rid of selfishness and coldness towards other people. People, We are called to put on compassion. We're called to move towards others with pity, with compassion. It teaches us that we are to have a deep sensitivity to the needs and sorrows of others. That we would not grow indifferent somehow towards suffering and the struggle that other people may have. It may not be your struggle. It may not be your suffering. And you may not think it's all that big of a deal, but compassionate hearts cause us to move towards those folks with, with care and tenderness and sympathy and, and, and consideration. It's a term that's often used of God. In Romans 12, verse 1, Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, by the mercy, same word, mercies of God, the compassionate mercy of God. 2 Corinthians 1 verse 3 refers to God as the father of mercies. And so if we're going to be a son or daughter of the king, then we're going to need to be like him. And that calls us to be compassionate. We're to be a people filled with mercy towards others. As a Christian, you, you don't just walk around and say, well, I'm just not that compassionate. That's not an option. You may be you may find compassion difficult, but you don't really have the option of being compassionate or not. It's a characteristic of a Christian. It's a virtue that we're called to put on. I get it, it doesn't always come natural to us. There are days you don't feel like being compassionate. There are days I don't feel like being compassionate. But as a believer, we're called to put it on. We're called to put it on and reflect the compassionate nature of God. Where would we be were it not for God's compassion? Number two, kindness. 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 We, we, we live in a very unkind world, don't we? It's a word that's often used to describe God's merciful acts for his people. It's an attitude of concern for others. Romans 2, verse 4. Paul says, Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Titus 3, verse 4, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God appeared, he saved us. Kindness of God is that which moves God towards us to extend mercy. It's an attitude of concern. 
Friends, if anything the world needs today, it is a, it is a presence of kindness. And that's a reality that needs to exist even in the church. I wrongly look at Twitter too much. And there's a lot of unkind Christians out there. Unkind Christians. And it's a shame. It's an embarrassment to the testimony of the witness of Christ. Friends, we're called to be kind. We're also called to humility. This is a Christ-like attitude that is willing to forego one's own rights for the good of others. Following in the steps of Jesus, don't we? We see that in Philippians chapter 2. It's the classic text that reminds us of humility. And Paul says there, if, any, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort in love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being in the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. That's, that, that has to be a daily practice because you wake up in the morning as the most significant person in your life. And daily we're called to do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility counting others more significant than ourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Humility. Considering others more important than yourself closely related to that is this idea of meekness. Meekness. It's a term Paul uses to refer to Jesus in 2 Corinthians 10 verse 1. And it's the opposite of acting out in unrighteous anger. It's the idea of gentleness in our approach to other people. To be meek. You need to understand this is not a call to be weak or spineless to be a pushover, anything like that. It's a, it's a posture of patient gentleness, marked with humility. All these are related. Should be the regular tone of the Christian toward other Christians, but also toward other non-Christians. Are we meek? And he says patience. Patient person is someone that is not quick to anger. It's the opposite of revenge and resentment. Brothers and sisters, we must keep in mind not one of us would be here today were it not for the patience of God. Second Peter 3:15 says that we should count the patience of our Lord as salvation. We are called to be long-suffering with people, to be patient. All of these, not, or none of these, I should say, none of these come natural. I mean, were you born this way? Were you born compassionate, kind, humble, meek, and patient? Is that how people would describe you? Husbands, is that how your wife would describe you? 
Would you, would you be able to be described by a friend like this? Is that how they, is that, is that the first thing they say? If you say, hey, tell me about so-and-so, what are they like? Well, they're compassionate, they're kind, they're, they're patient, they're humble, they're really meek. These virtues and characteristics are those that ought to increasingly mark the life of the believer. And if you find yourself struggling in a particular area, maybe you find yourself struggling to be patient. This is a constant thing I work on driving, right? Especially in St. Mary's County. God uses that. Just think that God is kind to put you here to sanctify you as you drive. It's a grace of God. I never think about it that way, but you should. It is. Friends, we will not be able to reflect the character of Christ or love others well without these virtues. And we need to keep in mind that we don't put these on in isolation. We put these on within a community. Sometimes we need help, don't we? We need help being compassionate. We need help being kind and patient and meek and gentle and all all those things that God calls us to do. You don't do this in isolation. So you not only need help doing it, you need a context in which you can practice it and live it out. Assumed here is this idea of community. God would not call us to these things if he did not expect us to be in relationship and proximity to other Christians, other people. We often need help putting on these new clothes and Others need our help to pursue these things as well. But what about the practice of biblical love? You see the foundation. You see the characteristics. And I want you to see the practice. Paul not only gives us this list of virtues that ought to be evident, he then gives us some examples of how that's fleshed out. Right? You see the flow of the text? He reminds us of who we are. He tells us what we're to put on. And then he shows us examples of how to live it out. All in three verses. Super helpful. Going back to the main command, though, the main driving command is back in in verse 12. Put on, then. That's the imperative. That's the command. He's saying, put on these virtues. And now he talks about two ways that these things flesh themselves out with these two participles that he uses, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. So we're to put on these virtues, bearing and forgiving. Bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Let's look at each of those. First of all, bearing with one another. To bear with someone means that we extend a certain, careful with this, certain tolerance toward them. We endure with them. To quote N.T. Wright, he said, it means to restrain your natural reaction towards odd or difficult people in letting them be themselves. Now, there's a whole lot of things that have to be Caveat with that, right? But this is, the, this is the idea here that we bear, that we just don't immediately slam people and begin to, to, to ridicule them or to begin to, to berate them. It's a sense of patience with them, isn't it? Long-suffering. One of the great challenges that we have in bearing with one another is that many times we don't want to do it. When we find people irritating or challenging The last thing you want to do is forbear. We either want to ignore people completely, which is not forbearance, or we want to put them in their place. 
Those are the two things that we typically want to do. I, just, I don't want to even pay attention to them, or let me just let me set the record straight right here. And I'm not saying that there should never be a time for either of those. But let's be honest, this is not something that comes natural or easy, is it? To bear with others. To bear with others. But here we see it's very much part of the, the new life we're called to live in Christ. When you find it challenging to bear with another person, Friend, you need to look back to your own calling, to your own status before God. You need to look back to the forbearance of God towards you. You stood as a rebel against God, and yet he was patiently pursuing you the whole time. Again, Romans 2, verse 3, Paul says, Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume upon the riches of his kindness and kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? God's forbearance, God patiently endured you in order to bring you to himself. So when you think about your relationship to other people and you find it difficult to bear with someone, you find them so irritating, you find them so frustrating, you find it just like every time you're around them you get angry. Friend, com compared to the wrongs we've committed against God, the wrongs we are called to endure from others are nothing. Absolutely nothing. So when you're irritated, you're frustrated, you're angry, you're wanting to avoid certain people, you're just flat out annoyed by someone, run quickly to the gospel at that moment and just remind yourself just how irritating and frustrating and, 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 and difficult you are and were. And yet God in his forbearance patiently pursued you. Brothers and sisters, you and I live in Christ because of God's forbearance toward us, bearing with each other. But he also says we're to forgive each other. Paul doesn't mince words here, does he? Look at the text. He says, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. The Scripture doesn't say... We are to forgive only if we feel like it. It says clearly, you must forgive. Again, Paul's point throughout this chapter so far has been that when we come to Christ, we're given a new heart that comes with many new attitudes, affections, virtues, and behaviors. And forgiveness is something that flows out of these virtues. One of the ways that you model love for someone else is not only your willingness to bear with them, but your willingness to forgive them when they've done you wrong. Here's a few thoughts about forgiveness that I think that are important for us to see here. Number one, consider your own forgiveness when it comes to this. Practice. Notice what he says. Forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. One of the things that ought to be a motivating factor, a driving factor in your extending forgiveness to someone else is to be reminded that you've been forgiven. 
Forgiveness that Christ extends to us serves as the basis of extending forgiveness to others. Recall the, the parable of the unforgiving servant, Matthew chapter 18. Jesus told a parable about a king and one of his servants. The servant owed the king a great debt and was unable to pay it. What did the king do? When an act of grace, he forgave the entire debt and let the servant go. It wasn't too long after that, this same servant found one of his fellow servants who owed him about a day's worth of money. I want to pick up there in the passage in Matthew chapter 18, verse 28. But when that same servant went out, this is the servant that the king had forgiven, the entire debt. When that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him into prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that, they had, take, all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Forgiveness. Brothers and sisters, there is no place for the believer to withhold or refuse forgiveness from someone when they have been the recipient of that very forgiveness from God. Now, if you struggle, I don't want to be naive, if you struggle with forgiving people, or maybe with a person, I'm not saying that that struggle isn't real. I'm not saying that the pain that may exist there isn't a reality that you've got to work through. I would just remind you, go back to be to be reminded of the forgiveness that's been given to you by Christ. Consider your own forgiveness that God has given you. When you find it a struggle to forgive others, go back to that. But then consider their forgiveness. What I mean by that is that if you're dealing with another Christian, it's highly presumptuous to refuse to forgive someone that Jesus himself has forgiven. Assuming the person is a believer, shouldn't it speak volumes to us that the very sin they've committed against us was the very sin that Jesus paid for on the cross? If forgiveness is something Jesus gives freely, then we should be willing to extend it to others. Perhaps they're not a Christian, though. You say, well, this person I'm dealing with is not a Christian. And I would just remind you, doesn't your attitude and willingness to reconcile with them provide you then an opportunity to point them to the gospel? Maybe the very means that God has ordained to bring about their repentance and their, their belief in Christ. A couple of practical considerations when it comes to forgiveness. 
I think sometimes we muddy the waters a bit when it, when it comes to this practice of forgiveness. And we could talk a lot about this. But I, I just want to mention a couple, two, two quick helpful, helpful things. I got this from the book The Peacemaker by Ken Sandy, and I think it's super helpful when you think about the practice of forgiveness. You need to think of forgiveness in two ways. What he calls positional forgiveness and transactional forgiveness. Positional forgiveness is an unconditional posture, meaning that you are ready to extend forgiveness when it is asked of you. I know sometimes you may say, well, I'll never talk to this person again, but I've forgiven them. Well, technically, technically, forgiveness is a two-way street. You can have a posture of forgiveness. You can have an attitude, a, a positional forgiveness that is unconditional. And you can have a heart that is willing to forgive. But there's also this idea of transactional forgiveness where you actually extend forgiveness. You actually extend it when they, when they ask you for it. Forgiveness is not just something to be offered. It is also something to be received. could be that there are people in your life right now that if you're honest, you are struggling to forgive them. You're not even in the positional forgiveness mindset right now. Maybe you've been deeply wounded and hurt by them. Maybe there are a variety of different circumstances that surround this, this struggle that you have. And friend, I would just, without getting into the depths of your circumstances, because I don't know them, number one, and I can't, number two, without getting into the depths of all of the complicated relationships that all of us probably have, and to some degree have these situations in our lives, I just want to, to us to wrestle with the text this morning, and by the grace of God, and, and by the Spirit of God that empowers us, when we think about this command, this is not option, this, this command to forgive. Let us be reminded that though the wedge between you and that other person may be deep. It is nowhere as deep as the wedge was between you and God. And a wedge that God was happy to bridge in pursuit of you by nailing your sin to a cross where his son died in your stead. So when you find that difficult relationship, angst in your heart of not wanting to forgive someone because of the gap that's there, as deep and as hurtful and as painful as that is, it is nowhere as deep as the gap that you had with God. Friends, this is the kind of community that the gospel produces, a loving community that is filled with compassionate, merciful, Kind, patient, meek, gentle people that is willing to bear with each other and that is willing to forgive each other. And yet, churches sadly can be places where this isn't the case. Churches sadly can be places where relationships are fractured, bitterness exists, division occurs. And friend, when that happens... I can almost, I, can, I don't know all things, I'm not omniscient. But I could, almost, I could almost say with confidence that if a church 
refuses to live, if you have a church filled with people that are not living in this way, it is a church that has taken its eyes off the beautiful grace of God, the, the, the reality of the gospel. The gospel is either not being preached there, or it's not being believed, or it's being obscured in some way. You can't be a gospel people and not live in this, this vein. I'm not saying perfectly. It's all to mark those who are Christ. But why is all this needed? Verse 14. Above all these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. These things are a manifestation of love. And Paul says in verse 14, which bind everything together in perfect harmony. A church that is going to be bound together in perfect harmony, to, that finds unity, is not a church that it's going to look the same. Everybody's going to look the same. That's not unity. A church that's going to be bound together in perfect harmony is not going to be a church that all likes the same music preferences. It's not going to be a church that, that has the same skin colors, that has the same socioeconomic backgrounds. It's not going to be a church that's the same externally. If a church is going to be bound together in unity, it's going to be a church that has been overwhelmed by the grace of God that empowers us by the Spirit of God to be this kind of people despite our differences, despite our conflicts, despite our divisions, where we lay those aside and we move toward each other in compassion, in love, in patience, bearing with each other and forgiving each other. That is what gospel produces. That's where you find true unity. That's where you find the, the reality that God has called us to be and to live as the church. By his grace. So if a community of believers are going to be bound together in unity, then a community of believers must be a people that love each other. And you're not going to be a people that love each other until you really get just how much God has loved you. The way in which you think about and treat others flows directly from the reality in which God has treated you. And when that is obscured, relationships, with, when that vertical understanding is, is confused and obscured, horizontal relationships are, are obscured and, and, and distorted. But when you get that vertical relationship right, that horizontal relationship, it's not automatic, but it makes things a whole lot easier by the grace of God and the Spirit of God. So why Paul's talking about this here. You can measure just how much a congregation gets the gospel by just how much a congregation loves each other. My guess is that you will get up tomorrow and get dressed. At least I hope you do. And when you do, you're going to intentionally put on what your context requires of you. You're going to dress the part. You're not going to dress in a way that confuses or contradicts what you do. It'd be quite embarrassing, wouldn't it? Friends, as you do that, let that be a reminder to you that we've been called to do the same as Christians, except this is not a Monday through Friday game. This is a 24-7 reality. We're called to put on that which Christ calls us to put on. That we're to dress in accordance with our profession and what we wear matters because it says a lot about the gospel that we claim to believe. So let's put these things on.
And let's keep them on by God's grace and for his glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this exhortation. We thank you for this command. And we thank you for the power that is supplied to us to obey it. Father, would you show us, would you show us, Father, would you convict us? Would you just open our eyes and help us to see where these virtues are lacking? And virtually every time we're going to see it in, 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 in relationship with others. Show us where we lack compassion. Show us where we lack humility, where we lack meekness, where we lack patience. Show us where we're not kind. And give us the grace to not only confess those, but to repent of them. God, we know that we cannot be this kind of people without your help. We know that we can't be this kind of people without the working of your Spirit in us to bring about the very things you've called us to be. So Lord, we acknowledge our dependency upon you. We acknowledge our own frailty and our own weaknesses and our own inability to do this. But because of the gospel and because of the Spirit, Lord, you've called us to do this, and so help us do it. Help us to live as a people who love each other well. And Father, would you forgive us where we've not? God, may Redeeming Grace Baptist Church continue to be a place that is marked by a generous love because we've been overwhelmed by a generous God who loved us even before the world existed. God, we ask for your help now, and we pray that you would help us to be faithful. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.